0: Turn, please, if you would, to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 22 and then look all the way down to verse 30. 22 to 30 is the passage of Scripture today. We are jumping back into our series called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, which is a verse-by-verse chronological walk through the life of Christ as we go through the Gospels looking at... Jesus Christ, the aim of the series is that we would see Christ more fully, savor him more fully, and then therefore worship him more rightly. And if you'll recall, we left off in John, the middle of John chapter 3. It's been a couple of months now. We, we, we left off to do a series for Christmas for the Advent season. And then we did the Grow series, a short series, the beginning of this year. My desire with that series is to stoke us up to... Um, desire, growth, and holiness this year. And now we're coming back to our Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ series. We plan to stay here for a while. John chapter 3, verse 22. This is right after Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus about true belief and new birth. So if you would, please stand as we read John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. I was reminded this morning as I was reading some on... The persecuted church, how precious it is that we have Bibles to hold in our hand. There are people around this globe that are desiring to get a Bible. And we have multiple copies of them even available for you here this morning. So if you don't have a Bible, they're there in the seats in front of you. John chapter 3, let's begin in verse 22. The word of the Lord says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside... And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anan near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put into prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look. This joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that's our prayer this morning, that verse 30, is that Jesus would increase at Harbin's, and that everything else about us would decrease. Lord, I pray that Christ would have the preeminent place of honor in our church and every church across this globe. Father, forgive us for the many times that we put in Jesus' spot other things. The personality of the preacher, the programs of the church, whatever it might be. Oh, Father, this morning I just beg you to do a work in our heart that causes us to have the desire and the attitude, the mentality that John the Baptist had. Jesus needs to increase and we need to decrease. So, Father, I pray that you would accomplish that through your word this morning, I pray that you bless the preaching of your word, that you'd add your blessing on top of the reading of the word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now everyone in here who's been a parent knows exactly what I'm going to talk about here in a second. And of course, the kids here as well understand, but if you've been an observer of small children for any, any amount of time, you know that, that children sometimes like to hoard their toys, Right? None of the kids in here, I know none of the the Harbin's kids in here are are like that, but kids tend to sort of hoard their toys. You see kids playing all the time, and and sometimes they'll they'll just gather all their toys around them to protect from everyone else. Don't, Don't take the toys I have here. And one of the things you'll notice if you watch children like that, whether it be in a nursery setting or even in a home setting, the kid that's hoarding the toys is rarely actually playing with the toys. He's rarely joyful at all. He's just, he's intent on guarding what he has. He'll hold them all in his arms while never playing with a single one of the toys. And, and so I was thinking about that this morning. Just, it's just human nature, isn't it? That's part of our, the evidence of our depravity is, is that we, we're born like that. We're born with jealousy and contempt toward others and, and, and a spirit of competition toward others. As we get into today's passage, I want us to see a couple of things. First of all, that that childish, petty jealousy and factionalism can actually infect very good ministries. But secondly, I want us to see that when we truly see and savor Christ, then that jealousy is replaced with a humble and a meek joy. And we see that in the life of John the Baptist in today's passage. Ultimately, as I've already said, my desire for the whole series is for us to do what verse 30 does. To to ask for Jesus to be increased and for us to decrease. So We want to see and savor Christ. As the hymn goes, um, turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of the earth will grow strangely dim. And that's our desire for this series. Christ increasing, us decreasing. Now... As I mentioned, we left off with Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. What an amazing passage of Scripture, John three, one through twenty-one is. Jesus was helping Nicodemus understand the the nature of true saving faith. Remember that there had been some at the end of John chapter two who had believed in Jesus, but their faith wasn't the type of faith to which Jesus committed himself to them. It was a it was a surface level faith. It wasn't genuine, it wasn't saving. So in comes Nicodemus, who, who has a very similar type of faith, or the exact same type of faith, as we see at the end of John 2. And he, he says something like this, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So sounds great. He's honoring Jesus. He has some sort of belief in Jesus. But it's not the faith that results from a heart that has been made new. It's not the faith that flows out of a regenerated heart. So Jesus then proceeds to inform Nicodemus about the true nature of saving faith which is the fruit of new birth, and the new birth itself is a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, and that it's it's a faith that looks not to oneself, but a faith that looks to the Son of Man, who is to be lifted up just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. It results in a new life of good works, works, according to the Apostle John, carried out in God. It's by his power. We have no record of how Nicodemus responds, though, to Jesus' dialogue with him here. At least not immediately. Later, perhaps, in the Gospels, we have hints that Nicodemus truly was a believer. And so it's after this conversation with Nicodemus that John the Apostle reintroduces John the Baptist. For in John the Baptist, we see a stark contrast to Nicodemus. We see a man of true and humble faith. A man who fully entrusted himself to the sovereign work of God. So let's dig into this passage this morning. Let me read the first couple of verses again. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim. Because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. So Jesus heads out and he sets up shop right Close to where John the Baptist is already doing his ministry of baptism. And the first question that sort of pops into our mind as we read this passage here is, is what's going on here? What is this baptism that Jesus is a part of here that he's carrying out with his disciples? John's is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin, and it points to the coming Messiah, which is, of course, Jesus. But but what about Jesus' baptism? What is that? Let me just say there is some disagreement here. Uh, as to what the nature of Jesus' baptism compared to John's baptism. But I just want to say that, that I've landed on the belief that this is the same type of baptism as John's. Namely, it's a public declaration of repentance of sin and trust in the Messiah for the forgiveness of our sins. Only Jesus's baptism obviously wasn't pointing to another like John's was, but it was pointing to himself. Obviously, the symbolism of baptism would would only have its full impact, like we've discussed in Romans 6, after Jesus dies and rises again, and we fully see the picture of baptism emerging. Thus, I would say that the baptism of John, and the baptism of Jesus, and the baptism of the post-Pentecost Christians, the church, are all the same. It's number one, a public repentance of sin, a public profession of faith in the Messiah, and an identification with the Messiah, and also a symbolism of cleansing, of purification from sins that comes from the repentance of sin and faith in the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. A matter of fact, I think the whole idea of, of Jesus being the Lamb of God, John's already called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The idea of, of Jesus being the Lamb of God coming to cleanse, to purify His people is key to understanding The dispute that seems to arise in this text here. Verse 25. It says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And the discussion simply means an argument. It wasn't just they were sitting down and said, hey, let's talk about this. They got an argument about purification. Now at first glance, this, this verse seems to be out of place. Because what, what are they talking about here? Purification. Because the next verse, we have John's disciples jealous about what Jesus is doing. So what on earth is this, this discussion? And whoever this Jew is, he's not mentioned again. Why is it even here? Now, many commentators, and too many in my opinion, as I looked over this text over the past couple of weeks, just sort of dismiss this verse. They'll say, well, it's just, sort of a, it's just sort of an incidental verse. It's just added, but it has nothing really to do with the story. I don't think so. Because John could have totally omitted that verse and the story still would have made sense. Jesus starts baptizing. John's disciples see him and They're jealous about it. But there's this little insertion about purification. I also say that based upon what John himself says at the very end of his gospel in verse 25 of chapter 21. He said, "There There are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself couldn't contain the books that would be written. In other words, Jesus did so much... ...that John is being very selective here in what he chooses to put on paper. The paper is valuable. The ink is valuable. His time is valuable. And he's making a decision out of all the things that Jesus did. I'm just choosing to write about these things. And he inserts this this little section about purification. What, What is that about? So I think John's been very careful. And I think he's purposely drawing our attention back to the concept of purification... John has already drawn our minds to purification back in chapter 2, verse 6. Do you remember that? There was the wedding feast at Canaan where Jesus turns the, the water into wine. Do you remember what the jars were that Jesus told to be filled up? The jars he used to change water to wine? They were purification jars. They were used for purification rites. Jesus could have picked any jars he wanted to. Matter of fact, there were jars that were used to carry wine. They were not the jars used for purification rites. But he, he chose to use those jars, and I believe it's the symbolizing of, an, of a new type of purification now on the scene. A new type of purification inaugurated by Jesus' ministry. It was Jesus' first miracle, that wedding at Cana. And he's inaugurating a new type of purification. And then earlier in chapter 3, in verse 5 of chapter 3, we have the mention of where Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus of being born of water and spirit. And we, we discussed, if you'll recall, that that should have driven Nicodemus' mind back to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36 verse 25 is the verse that precedes the famous Ezekiel verse on, on having new birth, a new heart. So let me read it for you. Ezekiel 36 25 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And then we have verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So new birth is very much attached to purification. Purification. So John is giving us all these images of purification as it relates to the forgiveness of sins and our new birth. And so John is the one who records John the Baptist's words when John the Baptist talks about the Lamb of God being Jesus who takes away the sins of the world. So as we read this where it says a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, I don't think we just need to dismiss it. I think we need to think about what they're talking about here. So, so let me just, let me, let me give you what I think is happening here. John the Baptist and his disciples are there and they're continuing to carry on their ministry and to proclaim a baptism of repentance of sins and for the forgiveness of sin, which is a purification. The Jews had many purification rites. There was a form of baptism the Jews practiced. When you came into Judaism, if you were a proselyte into Judaism, you had to be baptized. And it symbolized purification. And they had all kinds of purification rites. Some of them prescribed by Mosaic law, but many of them added by the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees and the scribes. that added their own purification rites on top of what God had already given them. Now the Jewish leaders didn't like John's baptism and they got in arguments with John's disciples. They didn't like John's baptism because they weren't the ones ruling over it. This was something that came from God. And if you know anything about the, the Jews at that time, they liked to try to control the way religious practices were, were carried out. And so they didn't like John's baptism. And so perhaps in the, in the, in the midst of this discussion, they begin to doubt the, the purpose of baptism, what this is all about. And they, they get in an argument about purification. And maybe they said something like, well, if your baptism is so important and so good, how come all these other people are going over to this guy over here? Do we need two purifications? What's going on? They begin to compare what Jesus is doing and all his disciples to what John's doing... ...and and trying to draw into question the the efficacy or whatever it might be of of what they're doing. And so I think that perhaps that discussion about purification... and, ...and these guys, John's disciples, perhaps not truly understanding what their baptism was supposed to be pointing to... ...led them to a discussion about purification... ...that then caused John's disciples to begin to get frustrated with what they're seeing down the river... ...and that is Jesus baptizing more people. So, whatever it might be, I, I believe that John's intentionally drawing our mind back to what's happening in baptism... ...that this, it's a symbolism of the purification from sin. But John's disciples evidently didn't understand that fully or, or weren't getting this fully. So we see that... As Jesus is indeed beginning to baptize more people, jealousy and resentment begins to surface in them. Verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. These men were still followers of John, so they, they call him Rabbi, obviously. So, so they, they didn't get, though, what John was teaching about Look at how they refer to Jesus. They still have great respect for John, but when they talk, talk about Jesus, they said, he who is with you across the Jordan, that guy that you talked about over there, look at him. I, I mean, I can only imagine that John the Baptist was a little bit frustrated. Don't you see? That's, it wasn't just a guy across the river. It was the man that I came here to proclaim to you. The son of man, the son of God. So they didn't see Jesus as Lord. They saw Jesus as competition. The history of the church, my friends, has never been without men and women that possess an unhealthy, competitive spirit. If we're honest, we feel it in our own hearts from time to time. We who profess to be true followers of Jesus so often compare ourselves with others and operate out of a spirit of competitiveness... Or simply react with begrudging covetousness when our own ministry, our own significance, begins to be eclipsed by another. J.C. Ryle, speaking on this passage, on this text, said, There are never wanting religious professors who care far more of the increase of their own party than for the increase of true Christianity. And who cannot rejoice in the spread of true religion. If it spread anywhere but within their own pale... There is a generation which can see no good doing except the ranks of its own congregations and which seems ready to shut men out of heaven if they will not enter therein under its banner. This too, my friends, is a failure to see Jesus as Lord. And instead put ourselves on a pedestal limiting Christ's work to the way we want him to do it. In the venue we want him to do it so I hope today's sermon will be a very practical one. One where we observe from John the Baptist that a ministry that genuinely sees and savors Christ... A, ...a ministry that genuinely sees and savors Christ is a ministry marked by humility and meekness. So let us therefore look at John's response to his disciples. Verse 27, John answered, "...a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven." So the first thing I want you to see this morning is that John the Baptist, he knew the source and the sustainer of his ministry. He knew who it came from and who kept it going. John the Baptist knew the source and the sustainer of his ministry, namely God. (laughs) I dare say that the first step to a humble and meek ministry is a serious grasp of the sovereignty of God. The first step to a humble and meek ministry is a serious grasp of the sovereignty of God. That's why I find it so ironic that many of those who claim to deeply believe in the total and absolute sovereignty of God are sometimes the most prideful people you can meet. And it saddens me because it shouldn't be the case. It just tells me that that person doesn't fully understand the sovereignty of God. Because the sovereignty of God smacks down any pride there might be in our life. Truly seeing and savoring the sovereignty of God as presented in the word of God should kill pride, kill arrogance, kill any self-sufficiency we might feel. John got it. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Not one single thing. Not one thing unless it's been given to him from heaven. This ministry, my friends, this church is not mine. It is not yours. We did nothing to earn it. We did nothing to build it. We did nothing to gain it. It was given to us from heaven. And this is so counterintuitive to us sinners, especially pull yourself up by your bootstraps, make something of yourself, hardworking American sinners like us. It's so counterintuitive. We prefer a 10-point strategy to building a successful ministry over a simple trust in God's sovereignty. Give me, give me ten steps to get my ministry going. Don't give me. Well, you know what? You can't receive anything unless God gives it to you. How about that? One step. That means you probably should be on your face in prayer about your ministry instead of trying to organize a way to make sure the ten steps take place. John the Baptist understood this. A true grasp of the absolute sovereignty of God should kill pride. It should crush our obsession with numbers. It should shatter the comparison game. God builds the ministry, not men. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, Jesus said. He builds it as he sees fit. He is sovereign. He gives, he takes away, he is sovereign. He lifts up, he brings down, he is sovereign. We plant, we water, he gives the increase as he sees fit, he's sovereign. Well, what about that church down the road? What about that church down the road that's running X amount of people on Sunday? Well, all I have to say is God is sovereign. But, but, but they're not preaching the gospel right. All I've got to say is God is sovereign. Listen, friends, he is sovereign over the sheep and the goats. Both. He is sovereign over good, God-centered, Christ-exalting, gospel-saturated preaching and, and teaching that, that struggles to reach even a few people. And he's sovereign over man-centered, emotion-exalting, gospel-like preaching that seems to draw thousands. He's sovereign. And sometimes the good preaching draws thousands, and sometimes the bad preaching draws few. He's sovereign. He has his purposes in it all. Some of his purposes are for edification, and some of his purposes are for judgment. It is not my place or your place to compare and to complain. If we do, we'll be tempted to compromise. Our job is to proclaim the gospel and let God give the increase, no matter how big or small it might be. We need to be like John the Baptist. He knew the source and the sustainer of his ministry, namely God. He knew that the time had come now for his ministry to begin to be eclipsed. Because John the Baptist also knew this. He knew the focus and the purpose of his ministry. Verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Now I can only imagine the temptations that John faced. Part of the reason I can imagine it is because I... ...as a pastor and as being someone that's... ...just by the nature of the role that God has assigned me... ...being in front of people... ...I feel the temptations myself. I can can only imagine John the Baptist's temptations. Here he was. He was a recluse. He was this strange guy. He had lived a Nazarite vow all of his life. He looks weird. He dresses weird. He smells bad. He eats yucky things. I'm sure that everyone thought he was just a few candles shy of a full menorah. All right, this guy he's just weird and now all of a sudden as the time of the messiah draws near he's being vindicated as people flock out to the jordan to hear his preaching and respond to, to him in baptism ministry success at last and now just as quickly as it sprang up it's beginning to fade away and that's what's bugging john's disciples and surely he was tempted with this in the same way. But by God's grace, he simply responded as, we, as he had before when he was quizzed by the Jewish leaders. He said, I am not the Christ. I have been sent before him. He understood that he was the messenger. He was the paper boy. The headlines were not ultimately about him. The good news that was being proclaimed was not about him. He knew that. He embraced it. I'm so saddened in my own life and in my own heart when I begin... Or, I am tempted to think that this ministry is about me. I am saddened when I see other Christian ministries built on men, empires built on names, on personalities, on celebrity. We live in a celebrity culture. My friends, the celebrity culture was designed by Satan himself, designed for idolatry. I mean, Satan wants you to get your eyes off of God and onto people. So, the celebrity culture is his making. He designed it to get our eyes off of God, to get our eyes on men. And sadly, within the church, that satanic culture has begun to gain a foothold. Have you noticed it? The celebrity culture within the church? Maybe it's not big in other parts of the world. Go to India, go to Pakistan, where being a celebrity Christian will get you shot in the head. But here in America, mm, Satan's having a heyday yes go after that guy get your eyes on him and his personality he's a cool relevant dude focus on him and not jesus let him increase satan is saying so long as jesus decreases i don't care how much you go to church Satan says, I don't care how much you go to church and love church and love being with God's people and love the preaching so long as you are infatuated with a man. And Jesus is over here decreasing all the time. He'll he'll fill churches like that. Go for it. But when the church begins to wake up and say, wait a second here. It isn't about celebrities and and, 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 and popularity and programs and all these things. We've got to get our eyes on Jesus. Well, that's when the real battle comes in. I'm grieved at the increasing celebrity culture in the church. I'm grieved by how it affects me. Huge churches built on one man. One man. You see it all the time. People primarily attracted to cool, hip, eloquent, relevant. Put whatever word you want there. Pastors. And the not-so-cool, hip, relevant, not-so-eloquent pastors are doing all they can to be like the hip, cool, relevant pastors. and And doing a poor job of copying them. Oh, for more pastors, for more churches, for more Christians who had John's aim to glorify Christ alone. To help his disciples get the idea that Jesus alone was the one worthy of glory. John introduces a new picture of Jesus to help them understand this. He calls Jesus the bridegroom. John, John liked to do that. He liked to introduce mind pictures. He calls Jesus the Lamb of God. He talks about Jesus coming with a winnowing fork. And now here he is, the bridegroom. Verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The Old Testament is rich with symbolism referring to God's people, Israel, as the bride. And God Himself as the bridegroom. Therefore, as John the Baptist calls Jesus the bridegroom, He is in no uncertain terms saying that Jesus is indeed Yahweh. Do you see by John calling Jesus the bridegroom, He's declaring that Jesus is God, He's Yahweh. He's also saying that only those who follow Christ are the bride, those who are going to Him are are the bride. He says, look over there. You see Jesus? He's the bridegroom. That's right. Yahweh, the bridegroom of God's people. And see all those people following? That's the bride. And my friends, if you are indeed part of the bride, you will want to see and savor the bridegroom. John was just the best man. He's just the friend. William Barclay says this about Jewish weddings. He said the best man in a Jewish wedding acted as the liaison between the bride and the bridegroom before the wedding. He arranged and presided over the wedding feast. He brought the bride and the bridegroom together during the ceremony. And later he would stand watch outside the bridal chamber as the bride readied herself and as the groom in another area readied himself. And he would guard against any false lovers who would try to get in. And then he would stand there until he heard the voice of the bridegroom. And then he would leave. As the bride, bridegroom went in to be with his bride, he would leave. And he would leave with great joy and rejoicing for his friend. The friend of the bridegroom, John says, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. So I want to draw our sermon to a close with this. Not only does John the Baptist know the source and sustainer of his ministry... ...he also knew the focus and the purpose of his ministry... ...namely to point to Christ. I think we also see that because of this... ...therefore, John the Baptist experienced the full joy of ministry. He rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. John the Baptist's ministry had been a fulfillment of Isaiah 40. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, remember... That's John the Baptist's ministry. His voice was crying out and it had been heard. But now, a new voice, a better voice, a more important voice, an infallible voice, the bridegroom's voice was ringing out. And it was time for the volume of John's voice to fade down as the volume of Christ's voice faded up. And nothing made John happier. He rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Oh, for the voice of Jesus to be heard in the church today. We live in a day of many, many voices. Loud voices, funny voices, foolish voices, blasphemous voices. There's only one voice that men must hear in order to be saved. For God has spoken life-giving words in these latter days through His Son... And the the degree to which a minister is faithful to God is the degree to which he faithfully proclaims the voice of Christ. And he faithfully teaches this word because it is the voice of Christ. His voice. If I stand in this pulpit and tell funny stories and give little of his voice, then I'm allowing my voice to drown out his and you get me out of this pulpit quickly. The voice of Christ has to go forth from the church. But I'm afraid in our culture today, there's lots of voices coming out of the church, but rarely are we hearing the voice of Christ. And it grieves me. I want Jesus' voice to be more, more fully heard. in harbors as well. Oh, for the voice of Jesus to be heard. If there's anything I hope to be known for when I die is that he spoke the words of Christ. That'll make me happy. That's true joy. Great and full joy comes when we know it isn't about us and that it isn't about our voice being heard. John rejoiced greatly that Jesus' voice was now being heard even as his own ministry influence dwindled away. And so he says, this joy of mine is now complete. It's full. This joy of mine is complete. It's full. True Deep, lasting joy is found as the bridegroom is made much of and we are made less of. That's where true joy comes from. He must increase. We must decrease. Church, we must be all about making much of him and not us. Too often we fail to live out verse 30 in many different ways. Let me just throw a few out there that were just off the top of my head. I think one of the things that we're tempted to do is focus too much on how to attract people to the church. How do we we get people here? It's not a bad question to ask, but here's the deal. Jesus is very attractive. Let's proclaim how fair he is and let him draw men unto himself. And those who won't come, won't come. That's fine. I I think in the church sometimes we mistake fun for joy it's not the same thing see i i I was a children's pastor for many years and god has brought me a long way during that journey as a children's pastor but i went in with the intent to make church fun And about a year and a half into the ministry i i began to question should i really be doing this What, what am i doing as a pastor And began to try to focus more on making Christ known than church fun. Because I wanted those children and I want this church to have an everlasting joy, not just some temporal fun. We could have a blast. There's a lot of creative people in this church. We could have a whole lot of fun. And fun, in and of itself, is not bad. But the church's main job is to put Christ on a pedestal that he might be attracted to those whom he's calling. And they find their joy in him. Instead of putting programs and systems and things on a pedestal to attract to people to the fun things we're doing. And there's hope that they'll find Jesus attractive too. There's other ways that we fail to live out verse 30. I think sometimes in the church we focus too much on felt needs. You all know, have heard me talk about this before. Not that needs don't need to be met. But my friends, I want your needs to be met through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Primarily so let's, let's look out there. There's lots of needy people. One thing I've said over and over again, if I could go back to seminary, I'd get a lot more training and counseling because I didn't realize how much baggage everyone has, including myself. So let's get out there and meet needs, but let's don't just meet needs for the sake of meeting needs and hope that also they'll hear about Jesus in the process. Let's proclaim Jesus. Let's proclaim the gospel. Let's see how the gospel transforms lives and meets those needs. He must increase. We must decrease. I think we focus too much on programs sometimes. At Harbin's we've been very, very intentional trying to limit programs just for the sake of programs. Again, the programs are oftentimes driven by, well, we've got to have this so that when people come and ask, we've got something to offer. Lo and behold that we just have Jesus to offer. Focusing on Putting a thousand different programs out there to meet every little niche group within the church is, can be dangerous because it can drive us away from exalting Christ and puts focuses on programs. I've been there. I've done that. You spend all your time making the program work and Jesus gets very little attention. As I already mentioned, focusing too much on personalities. Focusing too much on Styles focusing too much let me bring it home here focusing too much on our group, the way we do it is still getting our eyes off of Christ to get us back to what John the Baptist was dealing with here with his own disciples I'm afraid that many of us too easily fall into a trap of wanting to be recognized for our, our piety for our better doctrine for our holier life, for our greater wisdom for our better schooling for our better church. And in not so many words, perhaps we are unwittingly saying, look at me. And we get puffed up as we compare ourselves to the lesser Christians, those weak Christians down the road. Those weaker people, those weaker churches, that church is not doing it right. And all the while, our eyes are on us. And we sinfully hope that others' eyes are on us as we increase and he decreases. A couple of passages to sort of finish us up with that this morning. Numbers 11. It says, a young man ran to Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, my Lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that the Lord's people were all prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Where are the courageous yet meek men that our church needs today? Where is the courageous meekness of Moses? First chapter 12 of Numbers would follow up and tell us that Moses was the meekest man who walked the earth. Paul said to the Philippian church, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Where is the bold humility of a Paul in today's church? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. My friends, if the gospel's going out, we should be rejoicing. What would Paul, There's that verse again, rejoice What what was Paul rejoicing in? That Christ was being made much of. What was Moses rejoicing in? That, That the Lord was being made much of. And so what was John the Baptist rejoicing in? That Jesus was increasing and he was decreasing. It was their joy of these great men of the scriptures to see themselves decrease as the Lord increased it was their joy and so to be like that we have to beg the lord to do a work in our heart because it's counterintuitive like i said we're all like those children and we want to focus on our group our party the way we do things and our joy gets sapped So just resting in god that he gives He takes away as he sees fit. He's sovereign. He's even sovereign over the church down the road or wherever that may not even be preaching the gospel, and it grieves our heart. But you know what? We know God is sovereign, and he's allowing that for a purpose. And it may not be great purposes in our mind, but he's allowing it because he's sovereign. Let's see Christ increase. And so next week, as we continue in John 3... The rest of this chapter here, which I think is John the Baptist still speaking, even though the ESV uh, takes the quote marks off of there. As John the Baptist continues to speak, he talks about how great this Christ Jesus is and continues to increase Jesus in the eyes of his disciples. So right now as we close, I just want you to bow your heads and close your eyes as we get ready for the taking of communion. I can't think of a better verse to finish on than he must increase and I must decrease before we take the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, our prayer this morning is that you would allow, through the work of the Spirit in our church, for Jesus to be increased and for us to decrease. And so, Lord, as we get ready to to take the Lord's Supper and participate in this, this ordinance that you gave the church to do until you return, I pray that we would have hearts that are focused solely on Jesus Christ, And that as we take these elements, we realize we're proclaiming his death. What a great thing. What a great privilege we have to actually drink and eat. And in doing so, proclaim the gospel. So God, this morning I pray that you would stir up our hearts with proper affection for Jesus. Cause our minds, Lord, to see and to recognize any sin that might be in our life that needs to be confessed, we dare not take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. So God, we ask now that you be with the rest of our time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.